Hey, what's up, Sycamore View? It's me, Josh. As you can see, I am not with you today. In fact, I'm just down the road in Athens, Greece, uh, visiting our missionary, uh, Dino. And I'm not just any place today. I'm on Mars Hill that you read about in Acts 17. And up behind me, you can see the Parthenon, the Areopagus. All around me is the city of, of Athens. Dino didn't make this hike today. It is hot here in Athens, about 110 degrees. So he sent me up here. Uh, he sends his greetings. I wish he could have been in this video. Mata is not able to be with us. Mata is uh, actually in the States where their daughter is battling some health issues. So please keep Melina in your prayers. Uh, I may, may be a little windy this morning, but I just wanted to send you greetings from Mars Hill, a place that has uh, impacted and influenced the way I think about the church almost as much as anywhere else in Scripture. I mean, the Great Commission, uh, Matthew 16, Jesus at Caesarea Philippi. These are places that encourage me and give me ways to pray over our church. Just what does it mean to be the church in the middle of a lot of idolatry, uh, places that may not be pursuing God? Because not anybody could come speak at Mars Hill in Acts 17. Paul had to be invited to this place to talk about this quote-unquote new philosophy that he was sharing. And he was invited here. And this is where Paul talked about, hey, you're a very spiritual city. You're very religious in so many ways. But, um, you know, the... Paul even saw signs about the unknown God, and it was here that he talked about what it means uh, just to be the church in the midst of, of a lot of chaos and evil. I love how Paul didn't wait for people to come to him to learn about faith. Paul went to people. Uh, so today, I, I'm so pumped that you have Eric Wilson uh, to preach uh, to you. Those of you who may have come to Sycamore View in the last five years, uh, Eric was our executive minister from 2011 to 2015. Eric has worn many titles in his life. He's been in theater. He's a beat poet. Uh, he's he's a fantastic preacher, a minister, a spiritual director. And now he is, uh, he left Sycamore View in 2015 to go work at Pepperdine University in Malibu. And now he is the preaching minister at the University Church of Christ that meets on the campus of Pepperdine. Uh, Eric is one of my dearest friends. I love every moment I have. Eric Wilson, I love every moment I have with you and your family. I love you. I'm so pumped to have you back at Sycamore View today. And, and church, I will see you uh, here in just a couple of days. I love you all. A couple of days. I love you all. Lord have mercy. <laughs> y'all, I'm a mess. Oh my goodness. Mar Mars Hill, really? My goodness, it's so good to see. How have you been? <laughs> the um, moment at Mars Hill that changes everything are these words. In him, we live and move and have our very beingness. In him we live and we move and we have our very being. Man, there's some places we can find ourselves. Places of despair, Places of frustration and anger and pain. Places of worry and concern and problems. But the good news of the morning is in him we live and we have our very being. Whew, I might not even preach this message I planned for y'all. 
so good to see you all. I missed every one of you all. I tried to get around and hug all the people that I could. I'm sorry if I didn't get to you. I, I, I oh, just uh, miss you. And me and Sharita and, and Kanan and Jordan and the boys, th this was an amazing time here in our lives. And I want to thank you. I want to thank you for every blessing you gave us. I want to thank you for every time we've got a chance to spend together. We, we, we're doing good, we're doing good. Sharita is um, a professor, a full professor at Pepperdine University. Kanan is at Lipscomb University going into his senior year. His senior year, y'all. This dude is 21 years old. Jordan is leaving us in a month? Yesterday he was like, I, you know I could leave early and we could, I was like, dude, I only got a couple more weeks with you. He's going to St. Louis University um, in the fall and uh, as Josh said, I, 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 I wear a lot of titles and had a lot of titles at Pepperdine University and I was an associate dean and I was in this, this uh, trajectory to becoming uh, part of the administration and uh, every step I took was taking me further and further away from caring for people and I just bailed. <laughs> Right? That's my calling. That's my calling is to love and tend to the hearts of people. So I got a chance to be the preaching minister at University uh, Church of Christ on campus. And it is the bomb. I mean, I love it. It, it, is, it is one of the, the, the top pleasures of my life. And, and being here is one of those because I left some of my stones here. You know, uh, that's what you all are covering uh, on Sundays, right? Looking at all the places throughout the Bible where stones, rocks, and boulders have been placed, investigating altars and where stones are left and the stories those stones tell. And I got to tell you, this could be one of the most important messages, one of the most important studies you could be going through as a church because rocks and boulders and stones are all throughout the Bible. The psalm writer says when you are in abject weakness, God is our rock. The cleft of the rock was Moses' front row seat to seeing God in love show not only himself, but his divine character, his identity. It took a, a, God etched covenant vows, what we call the Ten Commandments, in stone. And it just took one well-placed rock for David to turn a giant problem into an even larger victory. Luke 19 lets us know if we refuse to praise God, the rocks will cry out themselves. And a stone rolled away from the front of a tomb let Mary and a dying world know our Redeemer lives. Oh, I just got to preach this morning. Y'all messed up. Y'all were, were gracious enough to invite me. And, and the praise team said, you press the button, you're getting the preaching. It's vitally important we look at biblical altars 
and where we leave our stones. And then there's Jacob, running away from his brother's anger. There's Jacob, not dealing with his problem, but running away from his problem. And as horrible as that is when any of us do it, God is gracious enough even to meet Jacob in his avoidance. There's Jacob in Genesis 28, alone, distressed, out in the cold, and his only comfort, a stone for a pillow. And as he lays there contemplating his fate, Jacob experiences divine encounter. Angels ascending and descending from the very presence of God. And struck by this amazing sight, Jacob takes this rock that was his only source of comfort. He places it, he anoints it, and he says these words over it. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, then shall the Lord be my God. And Jacob keeps a stone there as a reminder of the story of divine encounter. And while Jacob left his stone at the shores of the Jabbok, I left some of my stones right here. Because this has been my place of divine encounter. I encountered God here when we did life together. I encountered God here as we served together and shed tears together and laughed together and broke bread together. I encountered God here with every smile and lingering hug, with every challenge and uphill climb in every sacred and miraculous moment. So I've left some stones here with you to remind me of the story of what God did for us and with us and through us. And the stories these stones could tell. <laughs> we, were, we were only here for about four or five years, but they were some story-filled four or five years. It only took one text message from Kip to let me know I was in the right place at the right time serving the right church. And the text was this. I don't know if you remember it. Here's the text. Eric, what do I do with the bullet casings? <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm in the right church. Y'all might remember, it was a dude that actually tried to shoot open a safe on a Saturday night. So you know this dude ain't never been to church. One, he tried to steal from the church, and he thought it was some money in the church safe on Saturday. <laughs> too many stories. Too many lead dog stories to tell. Too many Lee Brown stories to tell. Too many camp stories to tell. The stories formed and shaped me. They informed how I function in the world. You know why? Because that's what stories do. So I got to ask this question. What stories are you believing about yourself these days. I'm gonna let that one rest on you. I'm gonna talk to y'all over here. 
They thinking about it. Yeah. What stories are you believing about yourself these days? See, most of us live from stories that are far too small. And if you live from a small story, your world becomes small, your thinking becomes small, and your behavior towards yourself and others becomes far too small. So I love you too much not to ask you this, so I got to ask you again, what stories are you believing about yourself these days? Here's one, if you haven't figured it out, it's in Revelation 2. This is Revelation 2, 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, and even in the day of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless... I have a few things against you. There's some among you who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the, uh, the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, and otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears... Let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. To the one who is victorious, I will give some hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Ooh. Ooh. Now, one of me and Josh's dear friends, and Jim's as well, was able to uh, sum up the entire book of Revelation in four small sentences. As odd as some of the images in Revelation, as confusing as many of the chapters may be, regardless of the many ways you can interpret all of its varied meanings, Dude was able to boil it down to four small sentences, and here they are. There is a battle. God wins. Pick a side and don't be stupid. <laughs> Pretty good, right? There's a battle. God wins. I need for you to pick a side and don't be stupid. But key to unlocking the wisdom of the book of Revelation is to understand what that battle is over. And this is where chapter 2 and 3 are so important because these two chapters suggest the battle is over the soul of the church. The battle is over the spirit of the church. There is a battle currently raging over the heart of God's faith communities. Now here's the thing. The called out people the ecclesia, the bride of Christ, the church, we can't be stopped. Jesus flat out says it, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church can't be stopped. But its soul can be compromised. Its spirit can be co-opted. 
A church's heart can be distracted. So we get these seven letters to these seven churches, and in the letters we read about Jesus speaking into their souls, speaking into the very spirit of the church. This letter is written to the angel of the church of Pergamum. Now, some people believe that this angel is, is like a guardian angel that was assigned to the church, and that's cool. But, but under further investigation, what we surmise is that word angel has more to do with the church's spirit. And we got to be aware of the church's spirit. See, spirit is what enlivens. It, it, it's what motivates. It's it, what drives you to do what you do. So to be aware of your spirit is to be aware of the church, is to become aware of those things that the Bible thinks about as your spirit, which are your thoughts, your feelings, your values, and your desires. So to be aware of your spirit or the church's spirit is to be aware of the thoughts, the, the, the feelings, the values, and the desires that drive you to do what you do. To be aware of a, your spirit or a church's spirit is to understand the thoughts, feelings, and values, the stories that form and shape the thoughts, feelings, values, and desires of the church. Do you know the stories y'all are believing about yourself these days? And the reason I keep on asking is because sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes churches forget their God-given story. Let life keep on happening. Have issues keep coming up. Allow circumstances and situations to arise. And you as an individual, but particularly you as a church, will look up one day and find that you have forgotten your own story, your own God-given story. Sometimes churches forget the story God has given them is a story about sacred union, about mutual abiding. The church in God, in God, in the church. And all of these letters speak this one idea into the spirit of these churches. Jesus is with you. Jesus is among you. When you take attendance at the end, add a plus one, because Jesus is with you. If there's a decision to make, never forget, Jesus is with you. If a circumstances arise, don't forget, Jesus is with you. If a problem comes up, don't forget, Jesus is with you. If a circumstances have you as a church of believers twisting and turning in the wind and you don't know where to go or where to turn, whatever you do, please do not forget that Jesus is with you. And the Jesus that's with the church in Pergamum is the Jesus who is the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, Hebrews 4 and 12 says that the word is sharper than a two-edged sword. So the description of Jesus may be a description of Jesus as the word, the logos, the clarifying word of wisdom that holds all of reality together. Jesus as the word is with them. And I love what the word says, the first words that the word says to them, which is, I know where you live. Now, where I grew up and when I grew up, them were fighting words, weren't they? You know, somebody trying to threaten you and walk away, and you'd be like, all right, I know where you live. Them fighting words. 
To all the rest of the churches in Revelation, Jesus says, I know your deeds. But in Pergamon, he says, I know where you live. I know where you are permanently residing. And where that was for them was where Satan was enthroned. See, Pergamon was a place that had its idols. Idol worship typically shows up in a person or a community or in societies where their attention is drawn to things of lesser importance than what's of most importance. The significance of the sin of idolatry gets lost on us when we only think about it as worshiping other gods. I don't run into too many people that do that. But I run into people every day who get distracted and start focusing on things of lesser importance instead of the thing that has ultimate importance. And that's so easy to do, right? Because most of the time, things of lesser importance aren't that bad. It's your job, your family, entertainment, wealth, significance, security, Certainty, power, and control, and all of which are relatively good things. The only problem with them is they are the lesser things. And to focus on those things is to have your attention drawn away from Christ, compassion, the, from the kingdom. What does Jesus teach us? I seek ye first what? They, right, the kingdom and all them other things, they gonna get, you're going to get them. But you see, in Pergamum, there was an actual ginormous statue of Caesar on a throne. And everywhere you went in the city, you would be able to see this idol to empire. Your eyes wouldn't be able to miss this gigantic symbol of the Roman Empire's dominance in their city. And a number of the members of their faith community's eyes were drawn to the symbol of comfort, significance, power and control. And they started listening to the propaganda of Rome. They started burning incense to Rome. They started buying into the political and religious ideology of empire. And without them even being aware of it, this became the story they began to believe about themselves. No longer Jesus being with them and in them. No longer compassion for the least of these. No longer the story about dying to some things and grieving some things so some th other things can be resurrected in your life. What was the name of that, 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 that movie? That they became children of a lesser God. It's just easy to lose focus. I won't have you say amen, I'll just say amen for us. This is why it's incumbent upon all of us to constantly ask the question, what are the stories we believe about ourselves as individuals, as a church? Have you come up with an answer yet? If not, here's something. If you hold fast to the kingdom story, if you hold strong to the gospel story, if you keep believing on the story of an almighty God who loves you enough to come and die for you and loves you enough to come alive for you, if you own that as your story and you embrace that as your story and you show up in your life as if that is your story, something amazing happens. Jesus spoke this into the spirit of the church in verse 17. He says, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name in it. Hallelujah. When I first read it, I was like, I don't know what that means, but I want some of it. 
hidden manna, a white stone with a new name. And when I did the research, I wanted it even more. God gives hidden manna. Mm. You all remember the story of manna, right? Moses and the children of Israel are starving on their way in wilderness wandering. As they transition from their status as the enslaved to the status of living into their promise, they find themselves in hunger. Because anytime anyone makes the journey from being enslaved to anything to living into their God-determined process, it's hard work, amen? And they find themselves in hunger. And God provides manna, provides bread for them from the sky. And to remember the story of God providing bread in the wilderness, they store a sample of this bread, this manna, in the Ark of the Covenant. They hide the manna for a future feeding, for a future hunger, for a future people starting to walk towards a future promise. And do you know who those people are? It's you. It's you. It's the church. There is set aside the bread of life for the people of God. Trust the story. Receive the bread. There is an extra measure of Jesus for the people of God. Anybody interested in some hidden manna? What about a white stone with a new name? Any takers? You should. Scholars and theologians have, have, have at least 12 theories of what this white stone means. Here's a few. On the breastplate, on the decorative piece worn by the Jewish high priest, were a bunch of colored stones, two of which were black and white. The urim and, uh, that was white and the thurum that was black. And when a, a critical decision needed to be made for an individual or a community, they would discern God's will by using the black and white stone. And the white stone was your yes. So the white stone could be God's yes for the people of God. Here's another. The Roman had a custom to award a white stone to the winner of an athletic competition. If you run the race and you finish, you get a white stone of victory. Hmm. Here's another. In ancient Greece, if a jury finds you innocent, they would cast a white stone as a symbol of your blamelessness. So they, if, if you were innocent, they would give you a white stone as a reminder of your acquittal. Here's another. Sometimes the ruler of a kingdom would throw this lavish meal. And the only way you can get in is with a tessera. And the tessera was a token, a ticket. It was, it, it was a white stone of admittance. Hmm. These are four of the theories that all lead to one place. And you know what? Jesus! Because tradition has it that this new name that is written on the white stone is the name of Jesus. So either Jesus is your yes or your victory or your acquittal or your attendance to the feast. Anybody interested in a white stone? Hallelujah. What do you need in your life today? Hmm? 
Has the world been offering you far too many no's and you need a desperate, are you desperate in need of a yes? Are you having to rack up too many losses in your life and you really could use a victory today? What do you need in your life today? Does the depth of your sin demand a high level of acquittal? Have you been on the outside looking in to a place of warmth, satisfaction, and belonging and desperately in need of admittance? If you remember your God-given story, if you live from your God-given story, God is offering you a yes this morning, offering you a victory this morning, offering you an acquittal this morning, offering you an admittance to table fellowship this morning. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name on it. This hidden banner and white stone becomes the reminder of your story. And the story becomes the shaper of your identities. This is why this question about the stories you believe in are so important. The stories we believe about ourselves in some way determine our identities as individuals in a faith community. Believe the wrong story and guess what? You become the wrong kind of people. Keep believing that story that says you will never measure up until you're perfect. Keep believing that story that says you will never have any of your needs met. Keep believing that story that says you're in this life alone and you got to do it all yourself. Keep believing that story that says you can't show up as your true self. Keep believing that story that says everyone has a will abandon you. Keep believing that story that says you are not able to manage life or crisis or the deepest part of your emotions. Keep believing the wrong story and it will lead you in the wrong direction, which will ultimately lead you into becoming the wrong kinds of people. But embrace and live from the story where you are the grateful recipient of hidden manna and a white stone with a new name. This will lead you on a path where you start showing up like Jesus yourself. For your family, for your church, for your world, and for your God, because this is your truest identity. In him we live and move and we have our very being. You start showing up like Jesus everywhere you go. God pull you over. You give them your ID. They see Jesus. You go to that um, cracker barrel. And they say it takes 20 to 25 minutes to seat you, and it took an hour. How do you address it? You show up like Jesus. That was an inside joke between me and my family. It took an hour, y'all, and I didn't want to show up like Jesus. But we, as individuals, and as the church are the embodiment of the Savior, Jesus Christ, for a dying world who is in desperate need of a Redeemer, who's in desperate need of a Messiah, who is in desperate need of a Waymaker, who's in desperate need of someone who will calm some storms in somebody's life. Your truest identity, if you're willing to sign up for the job, is for you to start showing up like Jesus. 
for yourself, for your family, for this church, for your world, and for your God. See, the white stone, like Jacob's altar and Isaac's well, becomes the object that reminds you of the story you should be living. God offers these objects of remembrance throughout the Bible because God knows we can be some forgetful people sometimes. Someone once much wiser than me once said, and I think I shared this with you as a church years ago, is that our future will not be negatively impacted so much by what we remember, but by the things we forget. We must remember. So God offers these objects of remembrance throughout the Bible because God knows we can, begin, we can be some forgetful people. So God offers us object after object to remind us of our story and thus our identity. White stones and wells, altars and anchors, booths and baptism, signs and symbols, crosses and empty tombs, all to remind you of your story and remind you, most importantly, of your identity. And now, we come to this time of our service where we come to some of the greatest objects of remembrance. To the table. To the bread. And the cup. Objects that remind us of the story of God's love for us. A God that loved us so much that God came down by, on his own in the person of Jesus Christ to live for you and to die for you and to rise again in order to convince you of the lengths God would go to save you. So I want to ask you to remember Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as well as your baptismal death, burial, and resurrection. And let me say this, if, if, if baptism has not become part of your story, let's do something about that today. It's too big of a part of your story for you to walk out that door. Ain't there some COVID out there? I just got country. I've been in Memphis. So <laughs> I've been in Memphis. It's some COVID out there, y'all. I had some barbecue last night. I got a draw. <laughs> it's so much out there that's so devastating, particularly an empire that is attempting to condition our minds through stories to make us numb, make us consumers, so that we can be exploited. But we got the better story. A story about a God willing to break his body and shed his blood for you to have eternal life. So for those that are here, and those that are online, I want you to join me as we take the bread. And let me read this over you. 
there was a request for some spoken words, so I'm honoring that request. I am bread. I watch as witness to your time and your world's turnings. I know your hunger full well. Given gratefully over a seed to glad moist ground, the me I am to be cracked through, casing stretching roots and branches, I know your fear of the dark full well, for I am bread. The reaper's sickle falls sharp for the chopping, the harvester wraps sheaves tight for the gathering, the threshing floor rumbles for wheat and chaff separating, the millstone crushes me for the grinding mix mi mingled with sacred partners of oil and water and consigned to flame and furnace, I am changed. I I am fully familiar with your bouts of pain, for I am bread. I was there when covenant was cut and Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and about 70 old men with raiment still wet from the blood from the vow walked the mountain pass to meet with God, drank the wine and broke me for the blessing. It was me. I was there when the Red Sea glistened gold and the sun separated and carefully calloused hands carried me over dry land. I fell from the sky from, for feeding, turning eyes from Egypt towards a place of promise. I changed mummering mouths to crying out in the morning, Manu, Manu, Manu. Abraham and Sarah served me as three strangers revealed to be Trinity. I fed prophets, priests, as well as peasants and paupers, and it is not lost on me that the Messiah was born in the house of bread. For I am bread. I watch as witness to your time and your world's turning. We share a brokenness which feeds full famine. While other meals satiate shallow cravings, the breaking, tearing, gashing, gouging we share satisfies earth's whole hunger. For your suffering is God's suffering. I am baked and broken for both of the blessing, for I am bread. God of grace and glory, thank you for the broken bread and Jesus's broken body. May we eat and remember the story of God in us. In Jesus's name, amen. Come, eat and live. Please take the cup as I read this over you. I am wine, the vintner's choice vine. I soak in water, bask in your sun, sure beams. I grow plump in the master's vineyard. I know your struggle to grow full well. I've weathered rain gust, fought thirst and long droughts, fed in the tips of my tendrils, the biting frost. I know the arbitrary nature of your storms full well, for I am wine. I was there at your sacred feast. I healed the wounds of an unknown neighbor. I saved the day at the wedding of Canaan when the Savior coaxed me to come from water from the cleansing jars. I was there at the cross when this same Savior refused me in order to feel, feel all your suffering and loss. I know your story full well. 
The vine dresser's knife cuts deep for the pruning. The harvester snatches me from my vine for the gathering. The press squeezes me for my juices. I sit in solitude in oaken cast for fermentation. I know you're suffering through your changes full well. For I am bread, the reminder of blood shed, of life willingly spilled. The cup of wrath drank dry by the one undeserving of said cup. I met you at the table feast of the lamb who invites you to sit for your safekeeping and care. For I am bread. Bread, the taste of a new covenant, the foretaste of the meal yet to come, where you will be known, no more tears, no more terror or tempest tossing, a deposit made for a coming supper, where your Savior is your host as well as your home. For I am wine. God, thank you for the cup. We thank you for drinking the cup of wrath only to offer us a cup of life. May we drink it and remember Jesus is in us. In his name we pray. Come, drink, and live. Amen? Amen.